Uh, I had a very specific direction I was going to go with this lesson, uh, and then I did something that I probably shouldn't have done. I reread the text again, and uh, and then started writing down some notes, and and I went a very different direction pretty late at night last night. So so bear with me today. If uh, the, what I've titled this lesson, if you look at the top of your notes, is it's called the story told and the story revealed. The story told and the story revealed, and. What really came to mind when I started thinking about this was a book that I had to read right before my freshman year of high school called Animal Farm. And I say I had to read it right before my freshman year of high school. Uh, It was in the curriculum. It was an assignment I had. uh, But I tended to spend a lot of time during that phase of my life fishing. And I, I recall not actually ever reading Animal Farm, but I did read the cliff notes of Animal Farm, which gave me just enough basis of information to pass the test. Uh, but I did remember those cliff notes well enough that it really came to mind today. And if you remember Animal Farm, it's this fascinating tale written by George Orwell. And in the tale, you've got these just really interesting characters, these, these you know, farm animals who get into some trouble. There's conflict. There's all kinds of just fascinating things going on. And that's the story that's being told. And you can, you can look at that story and come to all kinds of interesting moral conclusions. You can be entertained. You can be sad. You can be emotional. Uh, there's lots you can get out of the story told in Animal Farm. But if you don't know any better, you actually don't realize that Animal Farm is not actually about farm animals whatsoever. It's a very misleading book title. Animal Farm is a much deeper book. There's a story underneath it that's being revealed. Uh, The story of Animal Farm is actually about the Russians as you led to the Russian Revolution in 1917 uh, and up into the Stalinist communist area. It's just a it's a fascinating book that really gives you a very, very interesting insight into some political and socioeconomic, sociological aspects of the Russian government at the time. And if you didn't know that, you wouldn't quite understand this story that's being revealed in Animal Farm. And the Bible works in a very, very similar way. We, we, we see God do this a lot. He tells us a story that on its own, we can learn a lot from the story itself. And, and, and that's part of the reason it's in there. But whenever we actually peel off a layer, at least one layer deep, or even sometimes two or three or four layers deep, there's another story, a more critical story, that God wants to reveal to us. Uh, another book you can think of that does this pretty well, uh, a lot of you guys have probably read The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, you know, the Chronicles of Narnia uh, series. And just fascinating story. Lots of, uh, it's a really fun story. Uh, and if you wouldn't know any better, you would think this Aslan character is just a really cool lion who happens to sacrifice himself for the debts of his people and then is resurrected, breaks a stone, uh, and, and it comes back to really conquer, be a conquering king. You know, and, and you think about that, you read that story like, oh, that's a really awesome story. Well, it's actually a story about Jesus Christ, right? And, and, and if you don't really dig into it, you really miss a beautiful meaning. Ruth is the same way, right? We can read the story of Ruth, especially as we get into chapters 2, 3, and 4. We can, we can read the stories, and we could take a lot of incredible lessons from this story, especially as men. We can look at this guy named Boaz we're getting ready to read about, and we could learn a lot, and we should. But I want us today, I want us to, to, to start at the high level and look at what's the story being told. And then after we understand the story being told, we're going to take a step back. And we're going to go, okay, now tell us what is God actually trying to reveal to us in this story. So to, before we get going, let's just remember where we are in this story. Uh, remember, Ruth is taking 
place in the time of the judges, so at least 1,100 years or so before the time of Christ. Uh, Naomi, the matriarch of our story, she has left uh, Bethlehem with her husband and her two sons because of a famine, and she goes 50 miles to the east to Moab to find food. Uh, while they're there, the, the boys, you know, they marry Moabite women. Uh, one woman is Ruth, one woman is Orpah, uh, and, and they're there around 10 years, and neither Ruth or Orpah have any kids at the time. Tragedy strikes. Naomi's husband dies. Both boys die. Uh, there's no heirs. There's, there's really no likelihood for success for Naomi or Ruth or Orpah at this point in time. They're, they're destitute. They, they don't have any real hope. Naomi hears that the famine in Bethlehem has been lifted, and she decides to return to repent, change direction, and go back to God's land. Uh, and she just agonizes and, and, and really pleads with Ruth and Orpah not to go with her. Uh, even though the best thing for Naomi would be for Ruth and Orpah to go with her, she wants them to go back to Moab, go back to their homes, to their parents who are living, go back and find new husbands, all this good stuff. And so in lesson one, we learned about hesed, you know, that different type of love that, that, is, that is a combination of, of love and loyalty, commitment and sacrifice. We see how Naomi practices hesed. Whenever she, the best thing in the world for her would be to have those girls with her to help provide for her, but because she loves them so much, she tries to send them home. And then last week, we, we talked about the radical faith of Ruth, where she actually says, I know that's the best thing in the world for me, but I have given myself to the God of Israel. I have given myself to your God, Naomi, and your people will be my people, your God will be my God, where you die, I will die, right? And we, we compared her faith to the faith of Abraham to just get a pretty cool sense of just how radical the faith of Ruth uh, really was. And so we could look at this entire story from here on out, from chapter 2 on, we could see this entire story of Ruth really being an answer, God answering the prayers of Naomi when she laments to God, right? Whenever, whenever she prays in agony uh, in her situation, we could see this whole being an answer. That's one of the storylines we need to talk about. Uh, but there's a deeper storyline that's going to go on here. And today in chapter 2, the story that God's wanting to reveal to us, both at the high level and below, is a story of absolute grace. Grace is what we're going to talk about today. So as we get into this, I want to read through chapter 2. And I'm not going to read every word of this text, uh, but I just want to kind of skim through it a little bit. I want to make sure we understand this story and some of, some of the things that are actually going on in real life between Ruth and Naomi and this man named Boaz. And then we'll, we'll take a break and really diagnose it a little bit more. So as you get into your text, if you've got your Bibles open, turn to Ruth chapter 2. If you don't have Bibles with you, all of Ruth chapter 2 is on the green piece of paper. And I'm just going to kind of skim through this and, and see where we are. Remember, where we are in the story right now, Ruth and Naomi have made it back to Bethlehem. Uh, the women in Bethlehem are, are kind of saying, is this Naomi? They, they, they see them. There's kind of a big fuss. The town's talking about this return that they've been made. But Ruth and Naomi have nothing, right? They have nothing. They brought nothing back with them. There is no food, uh, no chance of livelihood right now whatsoever. So that's where we enter the story. And it tells us that Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And then we see here in verse 2 that Ruth, the Moabite, says to Naomi, Let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him, whose sight I shall find favor. So just real quick, 
on that, back in Leviticus uh, and in Deuteronomy, you see this as well, you see that part of the law that God laid down was that farmers at the time were not supposed to harvest 100% of their crops. Uh, they were supposed to really allow those corners, where it's a bit harder to harvest anyway, they were supposed to allow those corners to really stay uh, to where people who were widowed or orphaned or destitute in any way could come and they could pick up, they could glean uh, the crops at the time. And so what Ruth is saying is she's saying, hey, I want to get up right now and I want to go and do that. We're hungry. We have nothing to eat. So remember, we, they came at the beginning of the barley harvest. She wants to go into the fields, uh, into any field. She really doesn't know where to go, but she wants to go and glean. Uh, picking up the scraps, so to speak. It was about 10% of the farmer's field that they would ask them to do this with. Now, I could parlay this into a lesson on tithing right now, uh, but I'm not going to do it, right? Uh, but no, I could. I, I really could. Anyway, so Ruth is going up to, to go to the barley harvest and to glean in the fields. And so she sets out, and she goes into a field, and she just happened to come to a part of the field that belonged to Boaz, now, God's orchestrating this event. Naomi didn't tell her about Boaz. She doesn't know about Boaz at this point in time. She just happens to go to a part of the field that belonged to this man, this man who was in the tribe of Naomi's husband. And it says, And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem, and he said to the reapers, the guys, you know, his servants who are out actually working the field, you know, he said to them, you know, the Lord be with you, the Lord bless you. And he pretty much goes, you know, who, who is this woman who's out there gleaning in the field? Uh, whose young woman is this? And the servants come back to, to Boaz, and they say, hey, this is that young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi. And they said that, you know, she came to the field. She asked us, could she be, should she, she asked permission to glean, and they've let her do it, and she's been working hard all morning long. You know, she's gotten up, she's worked hard, she's taken very little rest. Uh, pretty much they're, they're commending Ruth at this point in time to Boaz. And it's a little mini lesson for us in this story that we hear. You know, bad situation. Ruth has made this massive commitment, that, you know, this radical step of faith. As you recall from last week, Naomi didn't really welcome her or, or like, you know, give her a hug or say thank you or show appreciation in any way for this step of faith she took. And so Ruth is pretty much in her home that morning. And even though she hasn't been appreciated or any of this, she says, I'm going to get up. I'm going to put one foot in front of the other. And I'm going to do all I can to help Naomi help our situation. So then in verse 8, Boaz says to Ruth, Now listen, my daughter. So he's talking directly to her. He says, Hey, don't go glean in another field or leave this one. I want you to stay close to my young women. Don't go look at the, don't put your eyes on the other field. Don't be tempted to go into another area. And the reason Boaz is telling her this is he's showing a lot of care for her right now. Uh, He knows the reputation of Ruth. He's heard what she does for Naomi, and he's showing a lot of protective care. Reason being, at that point in time, remember, Ruth has no man in her life to protect her at all. And a lot of people would prey upon women in these situations, in the fields themselves. So a lot of women would be sexually assaulted in the fields as they were gleaning because they knew that there was no one who could come in and seek retribution uh, for the crimes. So Boaz is telling her, stay with my young women. They, they know where to go. They are protected here. Stay here. Make sure you're safe. And then he goes um, even further. He goes, I've told the young men not to touch you. And he says, and when you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn, which that in itself is a bit crazy. 
He's telling a Moabite woman uh, with no privilege in society at all at this point in time to say, not only can you go get a drink, but drink the stuff that I've got the men going and getting and putting in their vessels. That was a huge deal. And then Ruth reacts in a way that I would hope we would all react whenever somebody shows us this type of grace. Uh, Grace, there's a little note at your very bottom. If, If you hear that word grace, I want you to think unmerited favor. Absolutely unmerited favor. Someone is showing favor towards you, a favorable disposition towards you for nothing that you've really done to deserve it. And in this situation, we start seeing Boaz show grace after grace uh, to Ruth. And the way she reacts to that, there in verse 10, says she falls on her face, bowing to the ground, and said to him, Why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me? I'm a foreigner. She's saying, I'm a nobody. I I know the way the Israelites think about the Gentiles, about everyone else in this area of the world. I'm a foreigner. Why in the world would you act this way? And Boaz answers her and says, I know what you've done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband. It's all been told to me. How you left your father and mother in your native land and you came to the people that you did not know before. He says, I want the Lord to repay you for the love you've shown, Naomi. Right? The the town has gotten wind of how Ruth has acted, that radical step of faith, and he wants to make sure she is truly repaid and rewarded for that. And he says these beautiful words. He says uh, there in verse 12, he goes, The God of Israel under whose wings you have come to take refuge. And I wanted to point that out for just a second because you're going to see that reference in the Bible a lot. Under these wings you take refuge. And I want you to think about, if, if any of you have ever lived on a farm or worked a farm before, it really helps when you, when you read the Bible. There's a lot of farming references in the Bible. And I want you to think about a mama chick, right, who is protecting her, or a mama chicken, who's protecting her little chicks, right? If you watch it, they'll, they'll put their wings around them. So he's saying, you have sought the God of Israel under whose wings you have sought uh, protection. You've, you've come to take refuge. Uh, and she goes, I have found favor in your eyes. You've comforted me and spoken kindly to your servant. So you see this beautiful exchange starting to happen between Ruth and Boaz. And then Boaz goes in even further to show grace here in verse 14. He says, at mealtime, he tells, he tells Ruth, come here and eat some bread and dip your morsel in the wine. And she is invited to sit beside the reapers, to sit beside his servants, the people of of his group, to actually eat a meal with them. It goes even further to say that that he passed her roasted grain and passed her so much that she ate enough to be satisfied. And she actually then took some of that completely prepared food home so that she could give some to Naomi uh, because she had had so much. And then after Ruth gets up from the dinner table, she goes back to work. Uh, one thing we see in here over and over again is Ruth is a very hard worker. But when she gets up, Boaz kind of leans over to the young men uh, where, where, where she really can't hear. And he tells the young men, he goes, Let her glean even among the sheaves and do not reproach her. And pull out some from the bundles for her and leave it for her to glean and do not rebuke her. So I want you to imagine this in your head. Pretty much what Boaz is saying is, hey, She's only been picking up the scraps, and she's been working her tail off. I want you to make this easier on her. I want you to go let her pick up amongst the places where we're picking up the big bundles, right? And who, where, was my, uh, where was my wheat farmer in here that I was talking to in the line a second ago? Where did you go? 
Yeah, right. There we go. Yeah. So, so we were just talking about this. Back before there was combines and everything, whenever you would pick up wheat, you would collect it all together and you'd see it. You kind of put a, a nice you know, ribbon or, or rope around it to, to carry them in bundles, twine. And uh, so pretty much what Boaz is saying is, I don't want her just picking up the scraps. I want her pretty much going by and picking up these entire big bundles. The stuff that we're harvesting for our income, I want you to give it to her. Right. And that's just incredible. And another way to think about it is uh, compare, you know, giving someone a few pennies a spare change versus giving them a completely rolled up, you know, uh, quarter, you know, quarter rolls, you know, worth $10, right? That's the difference here of what Boaz is really asking her to do. Boaz has fulfilled the law by making sure that 10% of his field is available to glean. And he's saying, even more so, I want to make sure she is taken care of. When Ruth gets done for the day, uh, she's able to kind of measure out all that she's collected, and pretty much she was able to collect a month and a half worth of income uh, equivalent in that one day being in Boaz's field. And so then we, we see also she gleans in the field, and she goes home to Naomi. And if you look in verse 19, it says, And her mother-in-law said to her, Where did you glean today, and where have you worked? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. Right, Naomi can probably just see how joyful Ruth is whenever she comes in. I mean, she brought home dinner. She brought home a month and a half worth of, uh, of barley. You know, she's just in awesome shape. Naomi notices just this incredible difference. And then if you read through the text, pretty much what you'll find is that Boaz then not only said, you know, you had a good day. He goes, I want you to come back every single day until we're done with the entire barley harvest. So she's got a couple, a couple months to go in there and really pick what she needs and even more so to make sure they are well taken care of, not only for that day that they were hungry, but they're taken care of for the entire year. Uh, so it's just when we read this, it'd be very easy not to quite realize just how drastic steps of grace we see from Boaz in this story. Uh, really, really incredible uh, what we really see. And, and as, as we go through this and we really think about, you know, what type of grace Boaz is showing her at this point in time, it's easy to start seeing where this story is starting to reveal to us. So this is a story being told. Uh, and, and I could go through here and I could teach about Boaz and I could give you some life lessons of how to be a good man to, difficult, to, to people who are vulnerable in society. But God's trying to tell us something much bigger than that. So just for a moment at your tables, what I want you to do is just talk about what do you think God is revealing to us in this story? And in particular, answer this question. Who do you think Boaz is in this story, and who do you think Ruth is in this story if we were to go down a deeper level? Talk about that for just a few minutes, uh, and we'll come back. All right, we'll uh, maybe start bringing it back together here. Let me, let me maybe start with the easier question. Who do you guys think, you know, who do you guys think Boaz represents in this story? Just, just. God. You know, I, mean, I, I, think, I think if anyone had a, an answer that was not somebody in the Trinity, let me know. You know it's, it's, I think Boaz, Boaz in, in, in this example, is really meant to illustrate Christ to us, right? To, to, to talk to us about uh, the Messiah who will one day come and the grace that comes through our faith in Christ. So if Boaz is Christ, who is Ruth? Us. We are Ruth, right? We are that... 
we are that foreigner who came from a, from a place. We, we, we are that, that person who came from, from an area that was not of God and are seeking refuge in, in, under the wings of a protector, of a redeemer. You know, we are Ruth. And so if, if we reread this story for just a second, I'm going to reread the summary of this story, and I'm going to replace the words Boaz with Christ, and I'm going to replace the words Ruth with me. So I want you to, to try to put, whenever you hear me say Blake or me, I want you to put your own name as I'm going through this. And I want you to just think about what God is revealing to us here in this story. So let me just kind of go through this. And I'm going to start around verse 8. And just think about me trying to approach Christ in, 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 in the area of Christ in this story. It says, And then Christ said to me, Now listen, my son. Do not go to another place. Do not leave me. You are now here with me. Keep close to me and keep close to my people. Keep close to my church. Let your eyes be on me and the things of me. Do not go after anything else. Have I not charged that nothing will stand between me and you? No predator will be able to get you. I am interceding on your behalf. And when you are thirsty, I am the drink of everlasting life. When you're hungry, I will provide what you need. When I heard this, I fell on my face and I bowed to the ground. And I said to Jesus, I said, why have I found favor in your eyes? Why have you shown me such grace? Aren't I a sinner? But Jesus answered me, I know who you are and I know your heart. I know the faith that has been shown to me. I know the love that you have for me. May that love be repaid to you. May the full rewards of my grace be known to you, for you have sought refuge under the wings of God. Then I said, I have found favor in your eyes, O Christ, for you have comforted me and spoken kindly to your servant, for I am your servant. And at mealtime, when I was in need, Christ said to me, Come here and eat some bread. Eat, get what you need. Even though you thought this was not what you came here for, I am giving you what you need. And I had all that I needed, and even more so. When I rose to go back, Christ instructed me, saying, Make sure I am always taken care of. Make sure I am always protected. Make sure that even what you didn't know you needed, I have provided. Just like in the days when Adam and Eve sinned and thought that they would make loincloths made out of fig leaves, I provided them animal skins. I provided more than what they needed. And I went back, and whenever I came home, when I went back into my family's house, when I came back to people who knew me before I got to see, before I got to experience the grace of Christ, they said, who in the world did you meet today? Where have you been? What person have you interacted with? Because they saw a difference in who I am. And I said, the man's name with who I was with today was Jesus Christ. And, they, and the people who were with me said, may you be blessed, may he be blessed, for, they have, for Christ has shown us such love. Right? This is a story of, of grace. It's a story of grace, not just between Boaz and Ruth, but it's a story of grace that we get to experience between Christ and us. Just like Ruth was a foreigner, we were sinners. Just like she came thinking she needed just enough wheat to eat for the day, and just enough wheat to provide for her family, Christ said, I know what you need, and I'll provide even more so. I'll actually provide the things you don't even realize that you need at this point in time. The story of grace is what we're learning about today. And what we're going to learn about next week is yet another story that's being revealed, a story of absolute redemption. But this is a great way for us to think about the grace of Christ. And I don't know about you guys, uh, but whenever I read this, 
Uh, and sometimes just whenever I think about the grace of Christ overall, it tends to be, or it, it tends to sound at times too good to be true. Uh, just absolutely too good to be true. You read that story and you replace yourself with Ruth, and you replace Boaz with Christ, and you think about how the grace of Christ actually plays out in our lives, it just sounds too good to be true. That protection that we get, the, the fact that it knows no socioeconomic bounds, it doesn't know, it, it, forgets this, it forgives the sin, uh, it provides for us, it brings us into community, just like how Ruth was sitting around that table eating, being brought into the people of Christ. We get to brought into a community in a way that is just foreign to the world. Uh, you know, we, we don't only get temporary relief. We get permanent relief from the things of this world. Uh, grace is just, the grace of Christ is absolutely profound, and it just at times seems too good to be true. And I think, I think at times when things sound too good to be true, especially in America and Western culture, uh, we get very, very skeptical about it. It's kind of like me whenever I'm buying a car. Um, when I'm buying a car, I pretty much don't trust anybody. Uh, I don't trust anybody at all. I, I've, I remember going in, and my wife, for like 10 years, owned like 12 different vehicles. And so I, I, was, I, I said, look, I've, we're, we're done with this whole getting a new car every two years. If we're going to do that, let's just get a lease. And so I went, and I found this great lease uh, advertisement that came on, and like for 250 bucks, I could get like a $90,000 car. Uh, it was just incredible. And, and so I go there like, well, hold on. That lease was for this very specific car, which has actually never been produced before. Uh, and now we have a very similar car, and your lease price would be, oh, just a little bit more, $885 a month. You know, so, so you know, we, we are conditioned to when things sound too good to be true, we think they normally are. They normally are. And, and so if, it, if, if we think it is, we're going to start to discount it. We're going to start to say that just can't be. And the grace of Christ is absolutely overwhelming. It can, and it can seem in so many ways just too good to be true. And this is where I'm going to ask you to bear with me because this is not what I planned on teaching today. I had a whole deal about Boaz and us being Boaz that we were going to go through today. And this came up. And so just bear with me for a minute. The grace of Christ sounds too good to be true. And the mistake I think we make at times, especially in American Christianity, is that whenever we talk about the grace of Christ, we talk about only the aspects that will lead people to believe that it is absolutely too good to be true. We speak boldly of the grace of Christ, which we ought to. We ought to, we ought to shout it from the rooftops, rooftops about the grace of Christ. But so often... We neglect to talk about the cost of following Christ. We neglect it completely. We just don't bring it up. We, we, whenever we're talking to our friends or talking to our family, we, we will talk about the goodness of Christ, the, all the things that you get, the benefits of following Christ, and then we just completely don't mention what it actually takes, the cost to follow Christ. And that is not what Jesus himself taught. Right? He said, measure your cost. Right? Uh, that is actually in the Bible. There's a story that's being revealed to us in this. And if we go back to what we learned in Ruth chapter 1, we actually learn about a pretty big cost that occurred uh, in here in, the, in Ruth's journey to put her faith in the God of Israel. If we remember right, uh, in this story, whenever Ruth and Naomi were on that road to Bethlehem, Ruth died to herself. She absolutely died to herself. 
Uh, she put her complete faith in the God of Israel and everything that she thought she wanted, everything that she had known, everything that she had been taught, uh, the, the idea of a husband, the idea of an income, the idea of her reputation, the, the fear she had about being a foreigner going into the land of Israel, knowing all the animosity between the Moabites, she died to all of that, absolutely died to all of that. We call that putting our faith in Christ, right? Putting our faith in Christ. And so often whenever we talk about our faith in Christ, we only talk about accepting the grace of Christ, which we should talk about that. But we don't actually talk about what it means to die to ourselves, right? To absolutely die to Christ. You think about Paul's journey on the road to Damascus. You know, Paul dies to everything that he held dear. He died. His his reputation that he had as a Jewish scholar, massively important in the Jewish politics and and academics at the time, that died whenever he put his faith in Christ. Uh, His idea of income, his idea of what his life was going to be, completely died when he put his life in Christ. You think about how we baptize people. Just to put that visual in your head for just a second. I want to make sure we all understand this. When we baptize somebody, think about physically what happens. They start out here, we bring them down into the water, and then we bring them back up, right? Whenever we take someone who's right here, we're saying, you are a sinner just like the rest of us. You are in a corrupted body just like the rest of us. You have been subjected to the sin of this world just like the rest of us. When you go below this water, it's not only that we're raising you up to cleanse you of your sins. We're actually dunking you below the water to symbolize your death to yourself Your old self has died. Your new self is being raised up, cleansed in the blood of Christ uh, as a member of God's kingdom, right? But you are dying to yourself and then being raised again. And for some reason, we don't talk about that quite as much. We don't talk about what that cost is. Now, as we understand it more and more, as we really get into it, we're going to realize that to die to ourselves is an incredible blessing uh, because we're all corrupted and sinful individuals. And as we follow our own ways, we do what we learned about in the book of Judges. We all do what's right in our own eyes, and then we all end up trampling each other pretty much, right? Following our own ways is not where we want to go anyway. But for some reason, we just don't like talking about this, uh, in, 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 especially in America, especially in our Western culture. And at times what I think happens is whenever we don't talk about the cost to follow Christ, what it, what it means that you actually give up, we're kind of like that car salesman that's only going to talk to you about the good things that can happen, and then we activate the skepticism in everyone's brain. If, if all I hear is all these good things and I don't talk about that cost, do you really believe it or not? So I want you to talk about your tables for just a couple minutes, is why do you think it is that we neglect or at least cast over that whole What does it mean to truly follow? What is the cost to follow Christ? Why don't we talk about that as much as we probably should? Talk about that for a few minutes. We'll come back. All right, maybe start bringing it back. Does anyone have any thoughts on this? Why is it that we... And, and anyone, if anyone wants to disagree with me and thinks, hey, we talk about this stuff all the time. I mean, I, I hear about this stuff just as much as I hear about the grace of Christ. If But... I'm going to assume everyone probably agrees with me, reflecting for a moment. So why is it? Why do you think we fail to really tell this entire story whenever we're talking about Christ? Thoughts? Well, we may think that uh, there, would, there might be a turnoff. There was, years ago, there was a young man I was talking to, and he, he was not a Christian, and he said, well, I, I'm waiting to accept Christ until I get through having all this fun I'm having right now. 
and I've yeah. lost track of him, and I, you know, I hope he accepted Christ. I, I, I suspect he never did. Yeah. But people often think that, well, I, you know, you know, I've got to give up going to the bar every Friday night, or I've got, you know, I got to quit running around on my wife if I do that. You know, if I accept Christ. So, but as I share with this young man, well, God, God changed my want to yeah. the things I used to do. There's no way I would do it. But he changed my will to it. It didn't happen overnight either. It took a while. I went to Ole Miss, so we're slow. <laughs> well, you think about it, it is. I mean, you kind of talk about it's a couple themes I heard out of there. Is, is you're afraid they may kind of run away to a certain extent whenever you, you really give them the full truth. Um, and you know people are naturally inclined to want to do what they're doing. And it's kind of it's it's not an easy message, right? It's a bit of an offensive message, and 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 like I said, and another thing is that it doesn't happen overnight, right? It, you know, we're sanctified over a period. You know, we're we're being called to be transformed, and our minds renewed over time. So yeah. I was going to say sometimes it's hard to uh, give up our pride and be humble mm-hmm. that we can visit with someone about Christ. Yeah. And, uh, it's it's uh, sometimes difficult to come on too strong and. Learn. Yeah. Oh, I, I, I'm with you. It'd be very easy to become Pharisaical whenever we are talking to people like this, right? It, it could be easy for us to almost seem judgmental whenever we're we're having this type of conversation. Uh, it's difficult to to have you know, difficult to have difficult conversations in love. Uh, we struggle with that all the time, you know, uh, around the church. I mean, it's, it's a hard thing to do. Yep. Sometimes I've got a few friends of mine, there's like an evangelistic opportunity where you meet somebody you may never see again. Mm-hmm. Everything sells mentality. You get this one opportunity, you want to hit all the highlights. You don't want to get into some of the muscle abilities. Yeah, leave that fine print to the side. The whole dying to yourself thing just doesn't seem too right, right? And it's different words, yeah. Well, I'll, I'll say it's interesting how we'll, we'll tend to do this. I'll give you an example in my life. Um, you know, whenever I made the, the, the change and the decision to do what I really thought was an act of obedience, which was to leave Australia and come here, uh, I can't tell you how many people I've talked to who, uh, whenever that was occurring or after it occurred, they said, you know, I'm so glad uh, that you made that decision so you could be closer to your family. It really makes sense at this stage of life uh, that, that you get to spend more time with your family, and I bet that's just a much better life. And they want to engage on that plane, right? And, and I could. I could. It would be so much easier for me to have these conversations if I engaged on that plane, like, yeah, you know what, we just made the decision that, that family was the most important thing in life right now, and we really thought it was a good idea to keep our kids close and be close to grandparents and aunts and uncles, uh, and, and we would just move on down that road, and we would kind of rub each other with some Christian themes, uh, but we wouldn't actually get into the meat of what happened there, right? It was a, no, no, I actually realized that I was a very prideful person who was not being obedient to God's call in my life, I finally, for maybe the first time in my Christian journey, accepted you know, what obedience actually was and did what I thought he was asking me to do. But I tell you what, it meant I had to die to a whole lot of things that I held dear. I had to die to my reputation at work. I had to die to my income that I had. I had to die to my pride because I, I, I still am pretty prideful. Ask Josh. Uh, but, but, you know, God's working on it. Um, but I had to die to a lot of those things just to be obedient and by God's grace, he has given me family. He has given me uh, things that I could have never imagined. That was the grace I got to experience that I never quite expected. Thank God for his love. Uh, but that actually wasn't the reason. I didn't, 
I didn't, I didn't do it so that those things would happen. I did it just because he told me to, right? And that required, that required death to yourself, right? Death to, to the ideals and things that I was holding dear, dear personally, the, the money I was holding dear, the, the security I thought I was holding dear. But it would be so much easier to only talk about the other side because it's not confrontational. Right? The gospel is absolutely confrontational. It's the most outrageous claim in the history of the world, right? That, that God himself would be incarnate and would come down and would die for our sins. And through our faith in him, we not only have everlasting life, but we're a citizen of his kingdom today. That is an outrageous claim that can easily sound too good to be true. And if we, if we don't tell the whole story of the gospel, which starts with the fact that I am a sinner in need of a savior, Right? If we don't tell that story, we can easily allow people to believe they've actually died to Christ when they have not. Right? They've not. The gospel is the greatest story in the world, and to tell it, we have to be truthful. We have to be bold enough to tell the truth in the way Jesus teaches us to do it, not in the way of the Pharisees, but in the way of love and grace and compassion and, and, and persistence and transparency. We have to do it the way that God has told us. You know, someone comes through the church doors, and this is where you see it a lot happening right now. Someone comes through the church doors and says, do you accept me as I am? What's our answer? Yes, yes, we accept you as you are. Please come through the doors. But know this, you can't stay where you are, right? You're coming into the church. You're a member of our family, of God's family, and you're going to be sanctified, right? God's going to do something through you that is going to make you more and more like the image of Jesus Christ on a daily basis, Right? We can't tell people, come through the doors, and you're just going to stay the way you are, and we're all happy about that. Right? No, we all come through the doors as sinful, fallen human beings, and then he does a pretty incredible work on us. Right? So we've got to make sure we're telling the whole story. And just like Ruth, we get to experience just the greatest gift. One of the greatest gifts is we get to experience this grace. So I want you guys to think about your lives just a little bit. Yeah, go ahead. Sorry. You know, I, I think it's important for us to remember that Ruth accepted God first. If the order of things was that Naomi loved, loved her and told her, obviously, about her God. Mm-hmm. She accepted God first. And once she accepted God was when she gave up all these other things. So there, there is a natural order to how it works between us being created by God and accepting Him. We tend to try to do it the opposite way, don't we? We try to, we tend to try to sell people a little bit at times. Uh, we try to sell people on grace of Jesus Christ before you can really understand it, and then you work backwards into acceptance. And what you see is Naomi fully demonstrated to Ruth, somehow, some way, who the God of Israel was. On that road to Bethlehem, she put her faith in that God. She then, when she got to experience grace, we see her, what, what, what did Ruth do when she first experienced that grace from Boaz? She fell to the ground, bowed down before her. And any time in the Bible, we've talked about this before, where you see people come, come into contact with that kind of grace, 
you just can't help but bow down knowing you are not worthy, but thankful for the grace that God has shown us, right? It's just an incredible deal. I think it's a very important point you make that faith comes, just like, just like when we talked about Hesed, you know, that type of love, that love cannot be sustained under our own power. It comes through the power of God that comes only through the faith of God. If you go back to the tenets of Christianity, we are saved by faith alone, by, gra- by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, right? Uh, we must have that combination of faith before we can truly understand the grace and love and, and, and peace of Christ. I want you guys to think about that. We, we, we tend to try to sell Christianity. We, we try to sell it. And by selling it, we, we feel like we need to protect Christianity from itself. We need, to, we need to guard it against the cultural forces at the time, and we, we tend to just keep it in our own little soft, easy bubble at times. I'm telling you right now, the gospel doesn't need any protection. The gospel just needs us to be truthful, right? Don't try to sell it. Do what God commands. Preach the gospel in love the way he teaches us to do it. Let's trust in him that his full story will be told. And as we live out our lives, we get to live out kind of that high-level storyline, right, with our own names and our own lives. And below that, as we truly trust in him and be truthful with his story, what he does is he reveals a story in our lives that is much deeper. He reveals a story of the kingdom that is so much different than what we could have ever imagined. So I just want you guys, I want to encourage you men to really be bold in your faith, uh, to, to not try to hide behind anything, just to be truthful uh, with, with the gospel. Let me uh, pray for us. And next week, we're going to talk about a very important topic uh, and, and make sure we really understand what redemption in Christ really looks like. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you again for today, and thank you for these men. Uh, I, I thank you for, for what you're teaching us here, and I, I just thank you for your word and for your wisdom. I thank you that 1,100 years before the time of Christ, uh, you gave us a story that would one day look to what Christ would do, not just at that day, but what he is doing today. I thank you that we have a Savior. I thank you we have a Savior who shows us so much grace that we can't even really comprehend it. It sounds too good to be true at times. But we know that it is true because it is coming from you and it is your story. And we thank you for the opportunity we have to completely die from ourselves and turn to a life that we have in you. Thank you for the privilege that we have to be members of your kingdom, to be sons of Christ. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.